So <clears throat> the title of my talk, if a title is important, um, is Holding Your Life with Kindness, The Practices of Joy and Gratitude. And um, the teachings, these teachings of the Brahma Viharas, which are these um, energies of the heart, the highest places in which our energies reside, the divine abodes, um, which begins with metta and loving kindness. These Brahma-viharas are an incredibly beautiful spectrum of loving kindness and metta as it turns to all aspects of our lives. The reality is, is that each, we've, we've mentioned this over and over again, that each of our lives are composed of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, that there is no life in this room or on this planet that does not have both. There is no life that is only rooted in the sorrows and there is no life that is rooted only in the joys. And as we cultivate this field of loving kindness and it turns to um, the aspect of our sorrows um, as Heather was speaking so eloquently last night, what automatically arises is the experience of compassion, that, that quivering of our heart. That's the, one of the classic images. And as we turn this, this kindness and this gentle, gentle awareness towards the goodness in our lives, this expansive joy is its response. Sometimes it's called appreciative joy. Sometimes it's called sympathetic joy. Sometimes it's called empathetic joy. I prefer to call it mudita because, the, you know, you actually have to feel your way into the experience. That's, that's just been my path. And the image that classically is given is a dear friend who is smiling at us, that is, a dear friend who is smiling at us all the time, giving us that radiance, that wholesome happiness, rejoicing in someone's good fortune, in the goodness of others. And, and in fact, the proximate cause, the, the penultimate condition before mudita arises is becoming aware of good fortune and success in the life of beings. But we're such a cynical culture. You know, the news is so sensationalistic, so polarizing, so cynical, that this aspect of joy, especially the, the happiness and the happiness of others can feel really sort of um, saccharine, Pollyanna-like. Um, you know, that, that, uh, that cockeyed optimist that, uh, you know, Mary Martin sang in South Pacific. Um, and yet, 
you know, there's that teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh that whenever there's sorrow, whenever there's a problem, where is the non-problem? Where is the non-sorrow in our life? Because it always is there. And our attention is not always to the full range of our experience. So there's that classic uh, Chinese Zen story of a master walking through the forest and he gets um, being chased by this raging tiger. And he's running away from this, this tiger and he gets stopped by this precipitous cliff. And, you know, he tries to scramble down in order to save his life and there's a branch that, that extends out and that's the furthest that he can go. So he's hanging on to the branch for his dear life and the tiger is, is overlooking him on the cliff and then a rat begins to gnaw at the branch. <laughs> and there's a bush that's in front of him that's not strong enough to hold his weight. But at the top of the bush is this ripe berry. And he takes it and eats it. And his mind is filled with the thought, this is so sweet. (laughs) And that's where the story ends. (laughs) The ability to see goodness and joy, regardless of what is arising, So as we were talking about with loving-kindness, some of the classic teachings um, on these Brahma-viharas are that there are these things that are very close and near, near opposites or uh, whatever, however you, you call that, and far, things that are far or far opposites of. So the far opposite of, of mudita, is really the mind that is in envy or jealousy. That mind that is constantly comparing. That anyone who does better than me is my enemy. The Buddha said, in a battle, the winners and the losers both lose. So mudita is the opposite of this, this con- unconditioned, of, I'm sorry, this unconscious conditioned mind of comparing, of competition. And in a very competitive culture that we're in, we can't really see the true nature of, of mudita or this ability to appreciate happiness in others. Because we're constantly thinking about this separate person. There is that separation, that, that, um, that feeling that to give unconditionally means that we will receive less because there's a limited piece of the pie available. And we're reluctant to share any of our happiness because it might mean less for us. And so if that is your experience, if that arises in the loving-kindness practice, if offering loving-kindness feels 
like the exact opposite arises, that there may be a feeling of um, uh, why is this person worthy of loving kindness when I'm not? Really, again, the invitation over and over again is to be kind to the practice itself. To hold even those feelings that arise of jealousy or envy or resentment in just meeting that moment for what it is, just touching it with your awareness and your, your experience. And that is the practice of kindness. You're not pushing it away. You're not trying to make it other. You're not trying to have a life that is not arising for you in this moment. And that, even though it's counterintuitive, is the practice of metta. So the thing that masquerades as mudita, as appreciative joy, as, as, um, as uh, the near opposite, is um, the closest description that I can come to is exuberance or exhilaration. That sometimes in the excitement of joy, we get actually attached to the pleasant feelings and we cascade into the experience without any consciousness of anything else. So we revel in it and there's no insight. So I don't know if you've had this experience, but uh, um, I certainly, like, I, I can remember one vacation to Paris that Stephen and I went on that was brilliant. I mean, we were having the time of our lives in the most romantic city in the world and each day was getting better and better and and then there was the day that we went home (laughs) and it was a downer and so what I learned from that experience is watching the transitions will moderate the exuberance it'll give it perspective that this too will pass. That you don't get lost in, in, that, in, in the attachment or the clinging to this is what always should happen. We should always be you know, like this because life won't be like that. On a, on a larger level, I also saw this even in our political life. So, you know, regardless of the side of the issue that you were on, um, the issues around Proposition 8 and same-sex marriage are really charged in this society. And so, you know, the initial, the initial arising of, the, of those struggles, whether it was in the voting or in the legal system, you know, there were wins on both sides, and each side were, was like, oh, we made it. You know, we got it. You know, they are, they are down. We have won. And what happened? You know, then there was the win on the other side. And so there is, um, there is wisdom in just noticing that even this energy of life changes. 
And as we moderate these ups and downs, as we go back and forth between the joys and the sorrows of our life, as we go back between karuna, compassion, and mudita, joy, what begins to arise in an organic way, in a lived way, is upeka, equanimity. It's not, it's not ex- an experience that you can think or even plan your way into. It's a lived experience that, yes, this life has all of the joys and the sorrows that it has. Joy is not a single state of being. It's not one of these, you know, light switches that you turn on and you're excited and and exuberant. There are innumerable states of joy. Are we really aware and, and cognizant of the intensity that joy can bring and the motivation and the creativity and, and the subtlety of things like tranquility and patience and contentment. Are we able to be aware that joy arises even in states of mind that are not quite so intense? I had this conversation with one of the practitioners today that, that we live in a world that really lives the highs and the lows really well. We completely miss the middle. You know, our mind falls off on the neutrality. We get bored. But there is joy in that range of experience. <clears throat> So appreciative or sympathetic joy is rejoicing in the happiness of self and others, adding, kind of adding happiness to happiness. And you all have felt this. So, for example, those of you who have children, when your children are happy, what does that do to you? How do you feel? It's not, you know, it's not a, a, a thought process. It's a cellular experience that, oh my God, there's this relaxation and, and happiness that comes from their happiness. My father was a teacher all of his life um, at different university levels. And one of the things that he, um, uh, I hear in my mind, um, is the way he held his teaching is he succeeded when his students surpassed him. And his joy in their success was his success. And that has always stayed with me. So sometimes when we uh, are working the loving-kindness practice and it may be hard to give it to a certain person, it may be hard to offer it to yourself, 
one of the techniques is to borrow that heart energy, to borrow joy or borrow kindness. You know, if it's hard to um, direct loving kindness to yourself, imagine someone who loves you. Offer loving kindness to them and feel how much they love you and how much worthy you are to receive their love and just replace, you know, borrow that. Borrow that loving from them and offer it to yourself. Likewise with joy. When you're walking down a street, what happens when a person smiles to you? I mean, they're not giving you anything tangible. But chances are my response is to smile back. Is that happiness leading to more happiness? His Holiness um, says, if happiness is infectious and spreads from person to person, it only makes sense to practice mudita for others in that there's more of a chance you will feel happiness. The odds are six billion to one. (laughs) That's pretty good. And in that connection, in that sharing, this is... I think some of the language we've been using is is that this practice of kindness, this practice of compassion, this practice of joy is a relational practice. It connects us. And joy in, in, in the happiness of others really leads to this greater joy of being alive. It's not about my life. It's actually not about your life. It's about, my God, we're alive. And isn't that amazing in this world of six six billion people, not to mention the other billions of life. There's a happiness knowing that we are not alone. This is also the experience of community, of Sangha. And it's also, you know, what we've been referring to, how these teachings lead to every other teaching, whatever door you go through. That we all affect each other so deeply and that we're all living together in this vivid brilliance this, this technicolor of life and this energy, this brilliance that I tend to call it, can support both personal transformation and social change. That one is not different from the other. Because regardless of whether you're working on the personal level or the social level, it can be overwhelming to be close to suffering. If that is the only experience you have, you get flooded and overwhelmed. And for those of you who are in the helping profession, in, in areas of social justice, you know what happens. We burn out. Remember to balance this important work in the world 
with the joy of your life. Remember why you're doing the work in the first place. Mudita is a zest for life. Some of you may know Michael Beckwith, who started um, the Agape International community in Los Angeles. And he writes, he speaks to this zest. I, I usually use this for eating meditation, but, but he speaks to this joie de vivre. I was a young boy, probably 10. All the students at school had been asked to grow gardens, and I can remember planting the seeds in the soil of my backyard, carrots, radishes, etc., One afternoon I went in the backyard and I pulled a radish out of the soil and bit into it. It was so sweet. In that moment, I felt the whole universe contained in this radish. It had begun as a seed, then merged with the soil and air and water until it became the vegetable that I was now eating. I thought, this is what they're trying to teach me in church. They're trying to tell me about this, this life, this presence, this great life that's in this radish is everywhere. It is this life force that they call God. That curiosity and that wonder and that awe that really connects all of us because we all have that at those experiences. And so the, um, the formal practice of mudita is to start with someone who you know to have good fortune and happiness. That's the entrance into the practice. And some of the um, phrases And again, it's really, how do you make it your own practice? What are the words that are most resonant with you? These are just sort of um, uh, markers or guides. May you enjoy happiness and abundance. May your happiness and good fortune never wane. May the causes of your happiness be immeasurable. So those are some of the phrases that, that, um, that help guide the heart into this appreciative joy, this joy that's greater than a personal experience. Audrey Lord, who many of you know, was um, uh, an African-American lesbian, feminist, uh, artist, human rights activist, she has seen her struggles and her suffering. She passed away in, I think in the early 90s, 92, from uh, liver cancer, but she had had breast cancer for 14 years. And she writes, once we recognize that it is we, what that it is we are feeling, once we recognize we can feel deeply love deeply, can feel joy, then 
we will demand that all parts of our life produce that kind of joy. And as we expand the forms of practice that we are already immersed in, loving kindness, awareness, this shared sense of joy being mudita, as we meet the moments for what they are, and as we meet our collective experience with gentleness, there is a kindness that arises in the form of gratitude. That openness and wonder of the moment as it absolutely is that, wow, this is my life. It's not a thought anymore. I can't even, maybe even describe it in words. But all of the sensations cascading into your consciousness, that opening, that, that you know, in the morning, the, the smell of the sunrise. You know how uh, there's that experience of synesthesia when, when you have a sensory experience, but it's coming through a sense door that is completely like, you know, opposite, so that you smell the sight or that you feel the inexplicable connection between that, that morning air chill and the sun <coughs> streaking over the gr- grasses. And there are no words to describe this. But you hold it in this open attitude of gratitude. We stop taking for granted all the things that we overlook, which is really the awareness practice, right? We turn our attention, we pay attention to our breath. We hardly give our breath a second thought usually. And yet when we begin to feel the energy of breath as the energy of our life, we do no longer take it for granted. And it becomes vividly precious. Misha is a friend of a friend and he gave me permission to read his poem which was written Um, right before his bar mitzvah and um, he went into um, his room and um, was in silence for a period before the actual ceremony and when he came out he had written these words. It's called Amazement. We can find ways to raise ourselves above others, rankings and orders, but when we stand on butterfly wings or fall with thick rain or rest in the heartbeat of a hummingbird, we look upon the world with a sense of awe that all humans have. We can wake up to the sirens of the daily drag, but if we open our eyes and absorb the world around us, we might find that salutation of serendipity. And if we look closely enough, we find that sun ray of serenity surrendering to the morning dew. 
these acts of wonder may not be plentiful and we may not be expect and they may not be expected but they are waiting for you to notice it may not be a tulip or a rainbow it may just be a handshake or a sound that wakes up your soul calling out with a voice only you can understand it is these moments that makes us live the wait may seem worthless but the time is priceless and so we live each day the same until we find a rose petal or a rock or a feather that calls our name and speaks to us with infinite seconds of complete bliss. That is awesome. (laughs) We recognize the awareness helps to support our um, mindfulness of these amazing things that are happening in our lives. And this emergence of this gratitude that, that is um, sometimes quite unexpected. When I was a monastic, um, each day I would go out on alms rounds and we would take our bowl and um, you would go at the at day's break, right when the <coughs> night was breaking and take off your shoes so that you were connected with the earth. And um, you would walk for your food. And what I began to notice, because we had a dining room in the monastery too when it was raining or when there was some other occasion that, you, that prevented you from going on alms round, I began to notice that the food from the bowl tasted differently than the food that I was receiving in the dining room. And so I'm this kind of empirical uh, um, guy that, you know, doesn't always trust my intuition. So I did this experiment and I took an orange from the dining room And I walked for my food, and usually there's fruit, so I got an orange from my bowl, and I ate the two. And the one from the bowl tasted better. It tasted sweeter. And I did this more than once. So then I go, and I think I'm having this altered experience, and blah, blah, blah. So I go to my preceptor, my abbot, and I report this. And most you know, um, most Asian masters are quite, you know, they don't respond very much to what you report. They just take (laughs) it in and you sit there and you leave. (laughs) And uh, so after I reported it, he said, you know, you are tasting the kindness of their generosity and the kindness of your gratitude. And that's the difference. Gratitude is that internal experience 
that rises in our hearts in appreciation. I was uh, with my husband and we were sitting with another couple at dinner and somewhere in the dinner conversation, we all realized that we had lo- each of us had lost at least one parent. And there was just this sinking into this appreciation of just being together in that moment. And we didn't really talk or process it. It was just a, a moment to be grateful for that, that we had this connection. I want to differentiate a little bit, at least this is true for my practice and see if it's true for yours. The internal experience of gratitude and the external action of giving thanks. For me, they're slightly different. Gratitude can precede the actual giving of thanks but it's an internal intention. Because when I thank you, I can have all sorts of intentions motivating that action. I could thank you because I am so appreciative of the gift that you've given me. Or I can thank you because I want more. Or I can thank you because I just want to end this interaction. They're all, they're all different experiences. No one can actually um, force me to be grateful. And so it's that um, internal response. Like Mudita, you know, gratitude is really difficult when we're comparing, when we're competing, or um, um, am I worthy of this gift, or should, do I have to give another gift back to someone that, that, has, that has offered me something? And gratitude is particularly difficult when there's anxiety or distraction. So gratitude is a mindfulness practice as well. I remember in one of those um, alms walking in Bangkok this time, uh, in, in the city, I was extremely worried about getting lost. And the monastic that I was following, you know, he, he knew the path, so he was really far ahead of me. Meanwhile, people were offering me my food for the day, and I was focused on how do I not get lost. And, you know, at, at some point in time, I just had to stop. It didn't matter if I got lost because I was already lost. I was already lost in the distraction and not appreciating the gift that was being given. The Buddha said there were two kinds of precious human beings in the world. Those who are generous and kind and those who are grateful. That it's like a hand going into a glove. So one more story from the monastery is that, you know, there's a cultural um, manifestation that has yet to arrive in our Western 
practice. It may not, um, which is fine. But there is this unconditional gratitude for the teachings that are actually supported by um, the temples. The, the teachings support the community and the community supports the temple in this organic way that has nothing to do with the events that are being offered, has nothing to do with the retreats or nothing to do with the interactions, but the, um, the movement of generosity is continual so that you'll have, um, if those of you who have been to Thailand will have seen that they have these things called money trees and you just append whatever you can offer and this beautiful, you know, like display not of currency, but of people's kindness. And when people actually walk up to the altar to place the, the envelope of the gift, what happens is, is that everybody else, as that person is walking up the center aisle, is contributing to the envelope. Because it's not about any one person. And so the movement of gratitude for the teachings, for generosity, for kindness, for joy of having given, is all one movement of the heart. It's the same movement. Gratitude is... um, is enabled, is easier when we feel abundant, when we feel full ourselves, so that when we feel loved, it's easier to love. When we feel cared for, we more easily can care for others. But sometimes we actually forget in the abundance. Gratitude in Pali is, is broken out as kata nyuta. Kata is that which has been done. And anuta is, it means knowing or recognizing or remembering. So remembering that which has been done is the movement of gratitude. I have a brother who is... Um, 12 years older than I am, so in many ways he's like a second father to me, and that's problematic. And, <laughs> and so there's a lot of irritation, even though I love him dearly, there's a lot of irritation that we sometimes get lost in, and, and a lot of frustration. And, and my partner Stephen has to remind me that at least you have a brother, which he doesn't to remember the abundance in your life. Some, um, some of the uh, invitations into the eating meditation are to eat five bites from full. And how do you do that? You can only do that when you're aware. But For me, that invitation is not just an eating meditation practice. It's a way to live our lives with kindness in the sense that, you know, sometimes we get lost in the abundance. 
we just want more of the more. What would it be like to live our lives buying our clothes five bites from full? Or using our gasoline five bites from full? Or doing anything with our resources five bites from full? How much kinder of a world would we live in? So being grateful is enhanced by this feeling of enough, of not being needy. The Buddha um, has a teaching called the Bequeath Sutra, Bequeath Teaching Sutra. You who want to escape from all the various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy even if they're in heaven. For people who do not know satisfaction are poor even if they're rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich even if they're poor. That aspect of contentment It's not so much about how much we have, but about how little we actually need to feel the preciousness of this life. So just even in this moment, just go inward for a moment and reflect, what is it that you're not needing in this moment? What do you not need right now? Because in that experience of feeling enough is a freedom from wanting and the possibility of gratitude. Gratitude from the freedom of suffering. The deeper we go into this practice of gratitude, the more that gratitude involves not just pleasant experiences. It is about appreciating everything, about the pleasant experiences, the unpleasant experiences, the neutral experiences, the full range of your life. Because none of us would be who we are without the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. You cannot live half a life, even though you may want that. If gratitude is an unconditional state of our hearts, then it is not dependent on anything. Not abundance, not pleasure, not even contentment. And, you know, those of you who are in relationships know when you have an intimate partnership, when you have a relationship that is that deep, you cannot just have the 10,000 joys of that relationship. There are 10,000 sorrows. 
every relationship has that. So that, you know, all those things that Stephen loves me for, he has to take the fact that I constantly ask him questions that he can't answer and that drives him bananas. That, um, that you know, that, that sometimes he crosses my deepest vulnerability. And we have to love all of that because that's who we are. I was going to go into this story, but I'm, I'm not sure that I have time. Just to say that um, I have gone through such a spiritual path with my family. And um, when I was growing up as a teenager, uh, you know, when you're looking at the news or whenever it comes up, um, uh, I was told there's no such thing as gay in China. There's just no such thing. It's a Western, it's, you know, it's an American thing. And it was so curious for me to live into my life in my 20s and realize that, uh, well, I have a different experience than this. And it really fractured our family relationship for a very long time. Maybe I am getting into this story. Um, (laughs) And so, finally, at the age of 36, I did come out to my parents. And um, uh, it was, it didn't bring anything together. Um, It was, you know, my mother felt that I would die of AIDS because that was her connection at the time with... with, um, uh, being gay. Um, uh, sh- they also felt that I was becoming more and more American and less, you know, traditional. Um, and over time, things didn't change so much. You know, we, Stephen and I got married and, and um, my mom came to the ceremony and she was wearing black and gray. (laughs) And her expression was pretty much the same. (laughs) And then, so over the years, um, there have been progressive openings as, as we stayed in relationship, as we stayed with the sorrows, the joys actually began to open up when this may seem small, when she started talking Chinese to Stephen, when she slipped and there was, you know, this this unconscious inclusion of him in the circle. To the point that I I was telling Sylvia this story um, uh, over Christmas, uh, I, I had a huge group of family members come over from mainland China and I had known some of them but 
you know, my extended family back there is in the hundreds and quite overwhelming. And um, a delegation was coming over to California. <laughs> and my mother is the, the oldest. And um, it, she has mixed feelings about this because she's the only one. She's seen everybody go. And it's, you know, it, it, it's very emotional for her. But what I told her was, you know, you're at the top of the heap. Enjoy it, you know, while you can. And so these people were coming over and, and they needed to pay her respects because she's the top of the heap. And um, uh, I said, and we were trying to make these arrangements to go to Los Angeles and, you know, how Stephen was going to get there. And I said, you know... Stephen doesn't actually have to come because I just don't know how this traditional family from China is going to hold our relationship. And she looked at me and she did this sign language. (laughs) It's not going to be a problem. (laughs) And there was this... And there was this relaxation that, oh my God, there is a door opening into this family that I've been part of for 56 years that I haven't experienced until this moment. This welcoming. That, and that this healing never comes too late. And there was this gratitude of everything that we've gone through it made it so much more profound. And I just want to say that there's a lot of sadness that comes with this gratitude. Partially because my father is no longer here, partially because I see my mother fading and that I am her parent right now. Gratitude is not always accompanied by pleasant feelings. Gratitude rejoices in whatever has taken place. The allowance, that, that really visceral realization that I would not be the person I am without all of these experiences. Often we get caught in the sorrow, in the suffering, even if it's through the experience of compassion. Suffering asks, why me? Why do I have to live this life? Gratitude asks, who else? Who else can live this incredible life? A life of suffering only knows how to survive. Gratitude has the insight that we were born for so much more than survival. We were really born for freedom. 
And that's what makes this such a radical practice. It changes our life. It's, you know, whether I look at my family relationships, whether I look at my work life, whether I look at my personal life, whether I look at the work that I do in the world, without gratitude, all we have left are the complaints and the injuries and the woundings, all the unfairness, the injustice. There's a word in, in Buddhist experience for this, and it's called a hell realm. And the word, I think, <clears throat> in our Western culture for this hell realm is depression, anxiety. Gratitude doesn't eliminate any of the pain or the grief or the loss that we've experienced. It actually completes it. It holds our life with this kindness. We accept the full range. And there's a healing that I would like to suggest Not that we understand that mindfulness or loving kindness is healing, but that we actually feel it from the inside out. Billy Mills um, was a um, Lakota Sioux and um, he grew up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and in, in the 1950s and in, in those days it was really abject poverty, um, subsistence. And in the midst of that suffering, his mom um, passed away from cancer early when he was eight. His dad died when he was 12. And he redirected all of that grief and that loss into his physical abilities, into his, his running capabilities. And um, he, he took up long distance running at an Indian boarding school in Kansas. When he was a junior at the University of Kansas, he made the NCAA All-American three times. And uh, in that process, um, for the press, he was told to get out of the photo because he was Native American. And that incident, over that incident, he almost suicided. But there was his father's voice telling him that his life was so much more. And so three years later, he went to win the 10,000 meter race in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. No other American has won that race before or since. And it is said to be one of the greatest upsets in Olympic history. He writes, he now works for uh, empowering youth um, in indigenous communities. And he writes, I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. 
I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given powerlessness that I might learn to surrender. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each moment. I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, and yet all my wishes came true. Each of us has suffered in our own ways, in our own lives. Each of us have our own stories, and each of us have faced the adversity of that first noble truth, that there is suffering. And like that lotus blossom that arises from the darkness of muddy waters, each of us create these beautiful lives. The more that we're aware, the more that we are kind, the more joy that we experience, and the more there is gratitude the more we feel how precious this life is. And I just want to say, in closing, I am so grateful to be with you. I know that I speak for all of us. I know that I speak for the staff. I feel that I speak for the turkeys and the... <laughs> we are so grateful together. Please carry that with you as a support. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.